Hi, I'm glad you're here. And um, Purim is around the corner, so I want to talk about uh, Purim a little bit and um, explore some more issues and about uh, free choice and uh, determinism. And this is, this is of course, uh, a question I think the Rambam said that it's, it's, it's vaster than the ocean itself. Because how can it be that God already knows what you're going to choose and yet you have the freedom to choose? They're inherently, uh, they're inherent contradictions. Because if I have the freedom to choose, you can't know which one I'm going to choose. Because if you already know which one I'm going to choose, then I didn't have free choice. And yet the Torah is absolutely, you know, certain about the fact that we do have free choice. So how do we have free choice? And then at the same time, God already knows what it is in advance what we're going to choose. So... So we're actually going to talk more about Purim, about life in general and everything like that, and, and the opportunity that we have in this world to make a contribution and all of the rest. But um, we'll be touching on that, that particular subject, you know, in and out as we go through, through the talk. Um, but really the focus of the talk is, is Purim itself. And I want to zero in on perhaps, well, there are a few turning points in the... In, 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 in the uh, the account of Purim um, in the Megillah, which is a, an amazing book. If you haven't read it, you, you have to read it, and it's extremely short. You can read it in like 15 minutes, the entire thing. And there's so much in the Megillah Esther, you, you can't even imagine. So, so please read it. And um, there's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book called Turnabout, which I highly recommend. And um, that's also short. And what that is, is like, it's, a, um, it's a fleshing out of the uh, perush, of the commentary of the Malbum. Um, uh, I believe it's from Rabbi Feldman. And um, what he does is he sort of novelizes, if you will, if that's fair, the, um, the Malbum's perush on Megillus Esther. And that is also short and is remarkable, remarkable, remarkable book. Highly recommend it. Um, you know, like all Torah, there's so much contained between the lines and between the letters um, that unless you um, allow yourself to experience the text as, as we've experienced it for thousands of years, you, you don't know what it says if you just read it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the joke. I heard it from Rabbi Green. It's, it's, uh, it's so funny it'll make you cry, but not... <laughs> Cry from a broken heart, not, not cry from laughing. But, um, but uh, the joke goes something like this. Uh, back in the day, um, blintzes were the great delicacy among the rich. I guess uh, amongst Jews, anyway. And uh, a very poor Jew says to his wife, just once in my life I'd like to have a blintz. And his wife says, absolutely, I'll tell you the ingredients, you go out, get the ingredients, and I'll make it for you. And so... Fine. So she says, okay, first thing you need is, um, we're going to need some cinnamon. He's like, cinnamon! Do you know how expensive cinnamon is? There hasn't been cinnamon around here for... Okay, she says, okay, fine, fine. Get some raisins. Raisins! What are you, crazy? She says, okay, um, get some flour. He says, I can get a little flour. And she says, get some water. She says, I'll get some water. So, so she does her best with these like scant ingredients. She makes, she makes some blintzes. He takes a bite. He says, you know, I really don't know what rich people see in blintzes. You know, so, so this, is, this is so much of our generation and the previous generation where we've, we've, we've grown up and we've, we've had Judaism presented to us or the text, the Torah presented to us and we take a bite out of it and we go, eh! <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that we haven't, we haven't had it served with, with all the commentaries and all the, all the explanations and all the experiential elements that are so essential. You know, for a lot of people, um, you know something, you can tell them a million thoughts and they can all be deep and beautiful. And none of that will make a dent. And that same person, you put that person at a Shabbos table and they have some soup and they eat a little challah, and all of a sudden they're, this is what I want, it's true. What, what, what happened? What happened? And 
what happened is the following, is that there's an experiential aspect of the truth of Torah that, that's communicated to the soul and it bypasses the brain altogether. And people feel it and they understand, this is right, I'm home. I'm home right now. I'll tell you something wild, if you haven't heard it. I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. There was a, a custom, I guess it's not kept anymore, but it's, it's a wild custom that was done by the Jews of Provence, that's in the south of France, in around the 1200s. And they did the following thing. They would take their Shabbos table and they would make their coffins from the wood from their Shabbos table. And the reason why they would do that is because, you know, there's an expression in English. We say there are no shrouds, meaning burial shrouds, don't have pockets. Said another way, you can't take it with you. Meaning that a person can accumulate all the wealth in this world, but, you know, when they go up to the next world, they, they don't take their large house and their swimming pool and their Bentley with them. Everyone knows that. But, but, but you do take much with you. You take all of your... All the chesed that you did, all the, the kindness and all the mitzvahs that you did, that you do take up with you. And in many ways, the Shabbos table is, is the headquarters of the goodness that you do in this world. It, just, it, it, it emanates goodness. And, and so, as such, people would make their coffins from their Shabbos table as a way of expressing this idea that you take all of that chesed and all that kindness up with you. That's, that's what you do take with you. And so, understanding that, that the Shabbos table is one expression of sort of like the, the, the nuclear fusion chamber of the experiential quality of the truth of Torah. That was a mouthful. <laughs> People just, they, they sit there and, 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 you, and you just, you feel it, you, you feel the truth of it. And then the, and then the learning can come afterwards. So, so the idea is in, in, in our generation so many times, and here's the most perplexing and vexing aspect of it, is that people who have been presented with something which is, you know, like this, this Blintz's recipe, which is, you know, missing all the tasty ingredients, they then rightly feel as though they have experienced the Torah. And and are rejecting it for good reason. So now, this is where it gets very complicated, because that person then, you say to that person, but, but you don't know, and the person says, but I do know. And they're right in saying that they do know. But they don't know. But they don't know that they don't know. And that's when it starts to get tricky. And that's where really, the, 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 the great solution is either, you know, an enlightening education, or... This experiential quality where, where the soul becomes awakened and the person realizes, ah, there's something more, there's something more, there's something more. So, so go ahead, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Okay. So, so now, now let's go into this, this portion of the, of the account of Purim that that is so amazing, and it's, it's often quoted. This is, but not everyone knows what's at stake over here. So this is um, chapter 4, I'll, I'll start reading from verse 12. And um, just to give you a little bit of background, you have this, um, this tremendous feast that Ahasuerus has made. And um, he's basically the, the, the king of the world, more or less at this point, humanly speaking. And um, what, why is he making this huge feast? It doesn't tell you in the... Uh, this is just one of the many, many, many things that, that, that you have to know from other sources. He is celebrating the fact that the 70-year prophecy that the Jews are going to return back to Israel has passed and the Jews haven't returned. Which means that the concept of the Jewish people, the reign of the Jewish people, is over forever. This is what he's celebrating. They're no longer going to be a threat to his kingdom, and basically, we as a people have now disappeared from the world scene. There might be Jews left, 
But Judaism as a driving force in terms of the perfection of civilization in the world and humanity is over. Because this prophecy hasn't been fulfilled, it's over. So what does he do? He has this giant ongoing feast and he brings out the vessels of the Holy Temple, the Beis Amikdash, in order to show that he's not going to be punished for using them in a secular, profane way. Now remember, his, his father-in-law, the previous king, thought the same thing that Ahasuerus thought, that the decree was over, that the 70 years had passed and the Jews hadn't been redeemed. He miscalculated the time. It was still within the 70 year period. He brought out these vessels of the Holy Temple and he died that night. In fact, if you know the famous expression, it's famous in English also, oh, the handwriting is on the wall. I'm sure you've all heard that. Where does that come from? The book of Daniel, Daniel, where all of a sudden, um, the king had brought out these vessels thinking that he was safe. He was, you know, outside the 70 year period. And then all of a sudden a hand comes, a disembodied hand. I mean, it's like the stuff of nightmares. And writes this encoded passage on the wall for everyone to see. He like freaks out. He almost dies on the spot from a heart attack out of fright in seeing this. They call for all the wise men of the kingdom. No one can figure out what this encoded message is. They call Daniel, Daniel, and they say, "Can, can you figure it out? He says, I'll give you, he gives them just his vast fortune, he says, promises them, if if you can figure it out. And and the message is, um, okay, I've got some bad news and some more more bad news. You know, it's not a good news, bad news thing, it's a a bad news, worse news thing. Which is basically, it's it's over, the the, the gig is up. And in fact, he, he died that night. He died that night. So now Ahasuerus now feels like he's in the clear. He's in the clear. So now the Jews come to this party. And if you ever wanted to know the answer, how could it be, how could it be that the Jews were punished in such a way that a decree was said in heaven that the entire Jewish people should be wiped out because they attended this party? You know, God is very just. And it seems like such a out of whack, such a disproportionate punishment. For, for, for the Jews attending this party. But now you have the background. Now you have the, the ability to understand why it was such a horrendous thing. Because the Jewish people in coming to that party were celebrating the fact that the Jewish people were over. And God says, oh, well, you know, you're celebrating the fact that, this, that you as a people are over, so then what, then, then what, then, then what do I need you for? Right? I mean, that's, that's heavy. It's very, very heavy. Um, So, so we have to know something because uh, we have a very, very beautiful claw, which is that the Jewish people are never over. And whether we attended the party, whether we didn't attend the party, whether they knew the significance or the message they were sending by attending the party, it doesn't matter because the Jewish people are forever. And and that night, what happens at the party when they attend? Vashti, who is the daughter of the king who brought out the vessels too early, right? Vashti is executed. And that sets the stage for Queen Esther to come onto the scene who becomes the salvation for the Jewish people. So in other words... Let's just make sure we're communicating here. The very night that the decree came down that the Jewish people should be destroyed, God was also, that night, making arrangements that the Jewish people should be saved. Do you understand? Simultaneously, simultaneously, God was already putting our salvation in place. Okay, now, cut to approximately, I always forget, it's eight years, it's nine years, Eight years, nine years later, again, this is not said in the text itself, another giant piece of information that unless you learn the commentaries, you you just don't appreciate what's going on. Eight, nine years later, Haman is able to put this decree for the destruction of the Jewish people in place. So what's so amazing about that is, 
look at, here's a, a rare instance where you're able to see cause and effect on a divine level. We're given eight or nine years to fix our act, which apparently we, we didn't do sufficiently before the decree comes down. A lot of us, you know, we have something, we do have a concept, I call it instant mishpat, which is like sort of like judgment on the spot. Like, I have a, I know someone who, who, you know, you know, everyone is connected. Whether someone is quote-unquote religious, observant, whatever, whatever words you want to use. But everyone, you know, one of the reasons why God gives us so many mitzvahs, 613 mitzvahs, um, is because that means everyone is going to be connected in multiple ways. That's one of the reasons why God gives us so many mitzvahs, in order to ensure, to guarantee, that all of us are connected in multiple ways, even if we're not keeping Shabbos, even if we're not keeping kosher, even if we're not putting on tefillin. Nonetheless, there's so many mitzvahs that we are doing. Okay? And that's one of the reasons why there's so many of them. So this, this person that I know, who's quote-unquote not religious, but obviously is in many ways, said, you know something? One of the things that I never do, she told me, one of the things I never ever do is steal candy from the supermarket, from the little candy bin. I never help myself to a candy without, you know, without buying a half a pound or quarter pound or whatever it is, you know? Like, they've got those little bins there where theoretically you could take one and whatever. She says, I never do it because it's stealing. She said, you know, today I took one, I bit into it, and I chipped my tooth. And I said to her, that's a beautiful thing. Because, you see, Reb Cohen explains, we tend to think that if someone is a tzaddik or tzaddikus, meaning, you know, loosely translated, a holy person, it's a very high level of spiritual attainment, that this is a, an across-the-board um, categorization. Meaning, uh, a tzaddik or a tzaddikus, that's the, the female version, is, is someone who's, you're either mastering everything or you're not mastering everything. But Rav Tzaddik HaKohen enlightens us and says, no, you, such, such a category exists, certainly, but more, more importantly, within each mitzvah, you could be a tzaddik or a tzaddikus. In other words, someone could be a tzaddik of a particular mitzvah and not be keeping many other crucial mitzvahs. And yet they would have the status of a tzaddik vis-a-vis that mitzvah. Now we know that the more righteous you are in a particular way, the more Hashem is watching you and, you know, the more, and, and correcting you, the more vulnerable you are to to sort of like a heavenly readjustment that we might commonly call a punishment. <laughs> right? It's not a punishment. It is an active sign of God's involvement because you are so much in His eye. Because He's so aware of you and so, so lovingly watching you because you're doing so much in terms of connecting with Him in that particular way. And so, as a sign of God's involvement in your life, if someone goes off the course, he might make an adjustment and maybe even make one on the spot. So, so I, I, I told her, I said, listen, because you're like a, a tzaddikus in terms of keeping that mitzvah of never stealing, when you did steal, bang, it came down immediately. But that's a sign that God's been watching and that He loves you. That's what it is. That's what it is. Okay. So now, I want to go back to the, the, the Purim account. And, um, and zero in on a particular thing. So, so years pass. Years pass and we don't fix it. And now this decree comes down. And now, now we have Mordechai and Esther talking with each other. Let me read you the passage. Again, it's chapter 4, verse 12. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. 
Then Mordechai said to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you will be able to escape in the king's palace any more than the rest of the Jews. Now remember, just a little bit of background again. The king did not know that Esther was Jewish. The decree to wipe out the Jews had been issued. Mordecai said, go and talk to the king. You know, appeal for the Jews. Esther said, I haven't been called to the king in 30 days, which means he's going to call to me. Now, this is... um. We're speaking euphemistically now about being called to the king. That means that she would be intimate with the king. So she said, I haven't been called to the king in 30 days. He's going to call to me very, very soon. And at that moment, I'll be able to appeal to the king. If I go without being called, in other words, if I just show up to the king, a decree has been made that anyone who comes to the king who hasn't been invited to see the king will be executed. So now this is very heavy. Because if she goes now, she risks being killed. She's violating, she's making a capital offense in, in, in Persia at that moment. If she waits for the natural time, which she knows is coming very, very soon because she was the favorite wife of the king. She knows it's going to be any day now. Then, all of a sudden, there's a setting and they'll be together and she can raise this request and it seems like a very natural, better time. It means a thousand percent or much more natural and better time, right? So now, with that background, listen to the following. And you know something? There's another hugely crucial piece of information, but I'll throw that in after this, okay? Then Mordecai said to reply to Esther regarding her saying, let me wait and I'll go in, you know, when he calls me. Do not imagine that you'll be able to escape in the king's palace any more than the rest of the Jews. For if you persist in keeping silent at a time like this, meaning if you don't risk your life to go in right now, Relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from some other place. While you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether it was just for such a time as this that you attained the royal position. And it gives me chills just saying it. Right? Now, I have to throw in one more piece of information and then I'll read you a few more lines. According to Rebbe Meir in the Talmud, and this is a bombshell, unless you already know it, but if you never heard it, it's a complete bombshell. Mordecai and Esther were husband and wife. Now, how could they remain husband and wife while Esther was with the king? And the answer is, because ordinarily that would mean that Esther would not be permitted to Mordecai anymore. And remember, who are Mordecai and Esther? Mordecai and Esther are, I mean, this is maybe, maybe, outside, of, out of, maybe outside of Abraham and Sarah. Maybe the greatest husband and wife team in the history of the Jewish people. I mean... Two holier people. Two, he was the head of the Sanhedrin. He knew 70 languages. Mordecai was like, he was awesome. He was beyond awesome. And who was Esther? Like the most beautiful, holy. She saved the Jewish people. I mean, can you imagine a couple like this? And their husband and wife. Right? Now they're permitted to be husband and wife. Again, even though she's now in the palace of the king, so to speak, because it's by coercion. Any intimacy between Esther and Ahasuerus is halachically, according to Jewish law, coerced because the king is calling her. So she, so to speak, is an ones. She's, she's oppressed at that point. And, and so she's not It's not coming from her choice. So in other words, 
it's not a relationship that would prohibit her from still being married to Mordechai. Does everyone understand that? So now, let's revisit what's at stake here. If Esther now goes to the king, that means this marriage is over. The greatest marriage, perhaps, one of the greatest marriages in human history is now going to be over so that the Jewish people can be saved. And Mordechai is saying to her, look, you see, you see this with Yaakov going to get the blessing from Yitzchak. You see, Esav, everybody knows Yitzchak, Isaac, wants to give Esav, Esau, the blessing of the firstborn. And what that means is, what's at stake there is the continuity of the Jewish people, of this line. Rivka, Rebecca, knows who Esau is, and knows who Yaakov, who Jacob is, and understands that, no, 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 no. For the mission of the Jewish people to be successful, it must go through Jacob. You know, women have this quality called Bina, which is an intuitiveness and a, a level of knowledge that men don't have. And it's, it's higher than what men have uh, in a very crucial way. Hashem says that to Abraham, listen to Sarah, that, that Sarah understands something on a level that even Abraham doesn't understand. Rivka understood that it must, the blessing must go through Jacob. So the plan is to dress up Jacob like Asaph and to get the blessing. Now, let's go a little bit deeper and you'll see why I'm relating it right now to Mordechai and Esther and Esther going in and risking her life to save the Jewish people. You'll understand what I'm saying in a moment. You see, Esau's great mitzvah, he had one great mitzvah, and it was kibbutah ve'em, honoring his father. More than his mother, the, the rabbis really concentrate on the fact that he really honored his father. And he really did. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. He really did. He really did honor his father. So, how can you uproot how can Jacob uproot that? In other words, that great merit is, so to speak, standing in the way between him getting the blessing. So in order, Jacob says to his mother, if I go in there and I get caught, Yitzchak is going to curse me. In other words, I'm going to die. If he catches me, I'm going to die. And that's the entire point. Because Jacob risked his life to listen to his mother. And in doing so, by putting his life on the line, he was able to attain a level of kibbutah of the aim of, of honoring his mother and his father that was at least equal to or perhaps greater than what Esav had. And so through the merit of risking his life for this mitzvah, he was able to bypass the merit of Esav on this particular issue. In other words, Esav was very great in honoring his parents, but Yaakov right now was absolutely sacrificing his entire life to honor his parents, to listen to his mother. Does everyone hear? And so he was able to get the blessing. Okay. The same thing goes with with that in mind, you can now understand what Mordechai was saying to Esther. Mordechai said, it's true the king is going to call you. Now remember, now, now we sort of have a deeper understanding of, of this dynamic, of this conversation between Esther and Mordechai. Esther was saying to Mordechai, not just the king is going to call me, and this will be a more appropriate sort of like romantic, perhaps intimate way of making an appeal to the king, right? She wasn't just saying that. She was also saying to Mordecai, and we can still stay married. And it's a better time to request. 
So it's better on all sides, Mordechai. And Mordechai says back to her, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. If you want to undo the decree that all Jews should die, how are you going to do that without sacrificing or at least putting your own life on the line? Unless you're willing to put your own life on the line, you're not going to be able to get rid of a decree that the entire Jewish people's lives are going to be eliminated. Is everyone here? You have to leverage that level of spirituality in order to accomplish this task. And you know what? Esther totally hears it. Not only is she putting her own life on the line, but of course, as we said, she's also putting away her marriage. Right? Incredible. Incredible. Now listen to this. Here's the turning point. Here's where Esther goes from being passive to being active and becoming the savior of the Jewish people. Verse 15, chapter 4. Then Esther said to reply to Mordecai, Go. Now she's calling the shots. Up until now, Mordecai's been calling the shots. Now Esther's calling the shots. Go. Assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now, I'm going to finish reading this. It's just another line or two. But what she just said there, again, you don't know this without learning the commentaries. But she just said something absolutely enormous, beyond just fast. All right, fasting for three days, getting everyone to fast for three days, that's pretty big. But you don't know the half of it until I explain it more. But here, I with my maids will fast also. Then I will go to the king, though it's unlawful. Meaning, on a couple of levels, right? She's, she's violating um, a law with capital punishment of the secular realm. No one can go unannounced to the king, uninvited to the king. And also, she's going to voluntarily be with the king, which she's married at the time, right? So, so she's, and she says, if I perish, I perish. Meaning, she says, I'm go- I'll lose this world and the next world. I'm going to sacrifice not just my life in this world, but my entire Olam Haba by doing this. Because she's going voluntarily to the king now. Okay? That's, it's like, it's wild what's going on right now. Mordecai then left and did exactly as Esther had commanded him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is the salvation of the Jewish people to this day is being enacted in these lines. All right. What's so great about this fast? I'll tell you what's so great about this fast. It happened over the holiday of Pesach. They were fasting on Pesach. They weren't eating matzah. Matzah is a mitzvah deraisa. It's one of the 613 commandments. You have to eat matzah Seder night. They were fasting. If you ask me, you see, again, uh, we've given other talks on this subject relating it to this particular theme, which is as far as I'm concerned, endlessly fascinating, the entire Purim drama takes place over Pesach, on the days of Pesach. And just, there's so much to that. I mean, I think uh, there's another talk online right now, I think it's called uh, Understanding the Miracle of Purim, if you want to um, zero in on that, because that's, that, that's, that's fascinating, because just in a nutshell, Purim is all about the hidden hand of God. Pesach is all about the revealed hand of God. And so the idea that the holiday of the hidden hand of God took place on the exact days of the holiday of the revealed hand of God is enormous. It's enormous. So, so anyway. If you asked me, what should you do? I would have told you, you should have the holiest Seder you could possibly have. Every bite of matzah you should have in mind the salvation of the Jewish people. You know? What did Esther say? She said, what do we need matzah for if there are not going to be any Jews? What are we eating matzah for? God's going to destroy the entire Jewish people? We've got to fast and pray to God that God should annul the decree and that we should continue to live. Was it Seder night? Seder night! So, so, and, and who is right? Not me. Not me. 
That, that's, what, that's what happened. And now, can you imagine, the, in today's day, just, you know, anyone who, who, who questions the, 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 the reverence that the Torah has for women, just is, is, I don't know how to say this nicely, is just uninformed. They're just uninformed. That's all it is. They just need to learn more with the right people. Because here you see the Gadol Hador, the great man of the Jewish people, is not only listening to his wife, but to the extent of Pesach being cancelled for the year. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big rabbinic decree, right? I mean, find me one rabbi in history who's ever made that decree. There isn't one. And the wife says to the husband, do this? And the husband says, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're right, you're right. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. And listens to her. So, you know, and the Jewish people get saved. And by the way, everyone should know, everyone has to hear the Megillah. And you have to hear it twice, not just once. Everyone goes at night. You have to hear it in the morning also. In fact, the rabbis say the morning reading is more important than the night reading. You have to hear it twice. And why, everybody? Because everyone was saved in this miracle. Because they wanted to eradicate men, women, and children. So everyone is included in this miracle. Okay. So, so what I want to zero in on right now is this particular line, which is really, which is really amazing. So, by the way, the end of the story, everyone knows, is that, I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. There, there's so much drama in this and twists and turns. And what Esther, the way Esther puts her plan into effect and, and undermines Haman is so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Maybe I can summarize it in just two sentences. And again, there's a, I know there's another talk on, online where I go into great detail in terms of describing this. But let me just try to say it in two sentences. What, she, what, what, what Esther did was she requested, she came to the king, everyone fasted, she came to the king, the king received her with favor, she, she invites him to a special banquet, which is just the two of them and Haman. And the king starts thinking, wait a second, this is weird. She sacrificed her life. She put her life on the line to invite me to a special dinner, just the two of us, and Haman? That's weird. That's weird. I guess, now remember, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. Right? Everyone wants to be running the show, but when you're running the show, you're thinking about the people who want to depose you. You know, it's not the sweet spot that everyone thinks it is. So he's thinking, wait a second, wait a second, Haman must want to murder me, and she's part of the plot. Why hasn't anyone told me that Haman wants to kill me? And then at the first banquet that they have together, she says, he says, what do you want? What do you want? And she says, I only want one thing. He says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, which the rabbis explain is everything except rebuilding the base of Migdash, the holy temple in Israel. That's what up to half my kingdom means, by the way. So, so she says, I want you to come to another banquet. Just you and me. And Haman. Oh, man. Now, I mean, this is like, this is like, this is the depths of Vulcan mind control that she's like, you know, doing on, on Akashveros, you know? Akashveros at this point is absolutely convinced. He's convinced that Haman wants to kill him and no one else is telling him. So he figures, he makes this account, he says, oh, it must be that someone saved my life once and I didn't properly reward them. Bring me the book of records. Now, the book of records are being controlled by Haman's people. They don't want to read anything nice about Mordecai, who did save the king's life, and who wasn't compensated. And that's why we have a claw, we have a foundation in Judaism, which is that when you learn something, you have to say it over in the person's name, because it brings redemption to the world. And that's because Mordecai had done this great thing 
for the king, but he was never given credit for. And you see, once Mordechai is given credit for his great act, redemption comes into the world. The Jewish people are saved. That's where we learn that teaching from. So, the people who are reading the king's book of records keep on skipping over the page with Mordechai. And there's a miracle where the book keeps on turning back to the page with Mordechai saving the king's life. I mean, it's, it's amazing what happened. And uh, all of a sudden, the king finds out, ah, Mordechai saved my life. And, and he says, what, 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 what did I give him as a reward? It says, ah, uh, you didn't give him anything. And then this becomes, begins the unraveling and, and, uh, and uh, the redemption. But, but anyway, anyway, uh, that actually happened after the, the first banquet night, before the second banquet night, that whole thing with the reading. And by the second banquet night, um, already uh, Haman is uh, executed. Um, but anyway, I want to get back to this, this point over here. Do not imagine, this is Mordecai speaking to Esther, this is before Esther wants to come in to see the king. He's going to call me any day now. He's going to call me, is what she's saying to Mordecai. Then Mordecai said, in reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you will be able to escape in the king's palace any more than the rest of the Jews. For if you persist in keeping silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from some other place, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether it was just for such a time that you attained the royal position. Okay. So now, what we have here is something very reassuring and very beautiful. Mordecai is saying to Esther, you know something? The Jewish people are going to be saved. We don't know how. We don't know when. You're in a position to do it. This is why you were created. If you do it, good. If you don't, don't think that the entire salvation of the Jewish people is on your shoulders. But you know what's going to happen? The story is going to be written very, very, very differently. Very, 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 very differently. And now we have to switch to us in this world. Because we're all Esther. We're all Esther. And Hashem is going to bring Mashiach. Hashem is going to perfect the world. Hashem didn't set out to make a broken world. Anyone who thinks that, and many people think this, God, that's why they have so many questions about God. Why did God make a world that's so broken? It means one of two things, and they're both wrong, by the way. Either He's not good, Because why would God make a world so filled with powerful, evil people, with people dying all over the place? So either God is not good, and that's absolutely wrong. God is good. It's a foundation. Or God is not all-powerful. Maybe God is good, but He's not all-powerful, and that's why there's so many problems in the world. Also not true. It's because the world is evolving toward perfection. The world has not been finished yet. We are partners in bringing about that perfection with God through the Torah, through the mitzvahs. And God puts each of us in the world. And He says to us, listen, don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment the Jewish people aren't going to be saved. Don't think for a moment that the world is not going to be perfected. It is The only question is, what about you? What is your role going to be? Are you going to usher in the perfection? Are you going to be Esther, making that choice, putting yourself on the line, going to the king, leveraging your soul in a beautiful way, bringing down this light and this salvation? Or are you going to be a passive observer and just sort of like, it's all going to happen without you? That's the question. That is the question. That's the question that all of us have to answer. Rabbi David Aaron from Israelite was in town this Shabbos, told an unbelievable story. Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Arbach, he's one of the great rabbis of the last several generations, sniffed her a few years ago. His father had a dream when he was 19 years old. Listen to this story, amazing story. His father had a dream when he was 19 years old. He was in Jerusalem. 
two very distinguished people came to him in the dream and said, you have to open up a yeshiva for the study of Kabbalah in Jerusalem. And, you know, he woke up from this dream and felt the truth of this dream, but at the same time, I'm 19 and it, this is Kabbalah and it's in Jerusalem. What? How? Where? It doesn't make any sense. I, me? What? And he goes to his best friend, who I think was also his, his, his learning partner, and he says to him, I have to tell you this dream that I had. Two very distinguished people came to me in the dream and said that I have to open up a center for the learning of Kabbalah in Jerusalem. And the friend said, I can't believe you just said that. I had the same dream. I had the same dream last night. So they said to each other, this is a big sign. We have to do this. And they went about it and it's, they opened up the yeshiva called Shari Shamayim in Yerushalayim. It's the most established um, uh, Kabbalah yeshiva in Jerusalem. And many, many, many great, great people learned there. And they did it. Thirty years later, after the dream, the, the first person who had had the dream, Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach's father, said to his partner, whose name I don't know, said to him, you know something? I figured out who those two people in the dream were. They were the two of us. They were the two of us coming to us to tell us what we need to do. Listen to how awesome that is. Rabbi Aaron went on to explain. He said, you know something? The future, on a very deep level, in the most fundamental matters, the future is written. You know, one of the most powerful bumper stickers I ever saw is the future is unwritten. (laughs) Also true, but in a different level. But in the most fundamental ways, in terms of the perfection of the world, in terms of the ultimate achievement of the Jewish people, the future is written. Is written. And I should say, of all of humanity. Because ultimately, we're all partners in bringing this about. The future is written in these crucial areas. But, so that's not up for grabs. That's not up for grabs. What's up for grabs is whether we play a role in that or not. Whether we play a role in that or not. And you know something? The wheel does not have to be reinvented. You know something? A lot of people don't appreciate, they don't fully appreciate that it's in the Torah already. Everyone wants to start from scratch. All the sincere smart people, they want to start from scratch. They want to say, okay, I want to do well. Yes, I can. Right? All the rest. They, they, they're motivated. So they go, well, how, where should I begin? You don't have to make it up. You don't have to invent the wheel on your own. The answer is the Torah. That is the answer. That is the answer. Then you just do it properly. Do it with love. Don't, you know, I'll tell you a story which I just, you know, it's funny inside at the same time. And, and it's about someone who's a magnificent guy. The guy is a great, great guy. But we have such a weakness in certain areas. And let me just, let me just give this as an example of that. This person who's Jewish, who's married to someone who's not Jewish, also a very nice person, but, you know, this is what it is. Was, they were at our Shabbos table many, many years ago, and he had just learned uh, that when you, you wash your hands before you eat the bread, and there's a way to do that, and if you're wearing a ring, you take off your ring. Okay? So he, I told him that, take off your ring, and I helped him with the washing and the prayer and everything like that. And he you know, was not familiar with that, and he was not familiar with many things, even though he was a very highly educated, wonderful person sat down next to his wife and he sees she washed her hand but she had her ring on during the washing. And he looks to her and says, you know, you kept your ring on? The guy knows one thing. He knows one thing and he's using it to hit his wife over the head with. So, so, we can't just do it. We have to do it right. <laughs> you have to do it right. What does right mean? With love. 
with a good eye, with compassion, with patience. Right? The point is, is not, I want to do it, you know why? So that I'm doing it and you're not doing it. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> Someone came up to the Kutzkarebi and said, teach me how to daven. He said, no. He said, why not? He says, because you just want to be better than other people. Why should I? I should just do that so just to feed your ego to show you? So, so let's understand something. The future is written. The future is written. The only question is, what role are we going to play? And while we're still breathing, and while we still have energy, and while we still have life, we have to do more, and we have to do better. And what form that takes exactly, that's up to all of us individually to figure out what that is. And to go slowly, don't overwhelm yourself, don't use this idea as a stick to hit yourself over the head with, it's not the point. The point is, is that Esther went in to see the king and she put herself on the line and we're still talking about it to this day. You know, we've mentioned this idea before but we have to just close with this idea. The Torah, on a very, 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 very deep level, is going to account from the last codification to the coming of Mashiach. And our lives will be accounted for in the final written text because this part of history is being recorded and is being written. And um, let's all read good things about the world, about all of us, and about each of us individually.